people are going to realize by February, you know, if they haven't realized already, CEOs, that we got to start moving quickly. The difference, Clayton, is I think there's a little more time for sole proprietorship CEOs to not be so harsh. Uh, but I think those that have quarterly earnings, uh, have investor calls coming up that have anxious Wall Street investors, either private uh, equity firms or hedge funds uh, that are really the backbone of their firms. I guarantee that the CEOs of the mortgage companies are having pretty serious conversations with those Wall Street firms who are actually the real owners. Yep. And uh, there are decisions being worked through right now that most people are not uh, privy to, but it'll become clear as time goes on. It's, it's the only option, right? Wow, it feels good to be back on the air. This is Clayton Collins, and I am back as your host of the Housing News Podcast. Sarah Wheeler has been the steward of this amazing show for the last several seasons, but now she's dedicating all of her on-air time to Housing Wire daily. And despite the fact that Sarah and I are fiercely competitive over who can grow their show the fastest... I'd still suggest you give her a listen on Housing Wire Daily. Since I've last been on the air, HW Media has changed quite a bit. We've launched FinLedger, our prop tech focused brand. We acquired Real Trends. We acquired Reverse Mortgage Daily. We've hosted events, worked remotely. We've done all the things, but we're still having a great time. Now that I am back on the air, I get to interview new executives weekly to bring you the most important perspectives and information happening in the housing economy. And we are kicking off this season with a bang. David Stevens is joining us to talk about everything happening in the housing world, from housing supply and demand dynamics, home price appreciation, affordability, FHFA fees, mortgage bank margin compression and consolidation, housing sector employment trends. We're really covering a lot For those of you that don't know Dave, he has pretty much done every leadership role in the housing economy, from being an executive at Freddie Mac to leading Wells Fargo Home Mortgage and president and COO of Long & Foster. He served as an FHA commissioner and the CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association. Today, he is a CEO of his own consulting practice, Mountain Lake Consulting. Dave is incredibly connected and plugged into what is happening in the housing world in this interview definitely showcases that knowledge. And before we jump into this conversation with Dave, I have a quick message from Real Trends. So Real Trends, which is now part of HW Media, has been putting on rankings programs for the top real estate agents, teams, and brokerages for many years. This has become one of the most prestigious ranking programs across the housing industry, and really an incredible honor that showcases the top agents and brokerages in the real estate space. The window for agents, brokerages, and teams to submit their 2021 production data for consideration in the ranking program is officially open. The window is open until March 1st to make it through our verification process. So we really hope you'll get your information in. Results for the program will once again be featured in the Wall Street Journal in June. Please visit realtrends.com to learn more about the qualifications and to submit your production data. And on that, the interview with Dave Stevens. All right, let's get this started. So Dave, welcome. Thrilled to have you. Good to be with you, Clayton. Happy New Year. 
Happy New Year. Uh, so our audience knows you as the, the former president and, and CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association, knows a lot about your professional past in the mortgage industry. But today you lead Mountain Lake Consulting. Give us a give us a quick glimpse into how you're dedicating your time right now at this point in your career. Wow. So um, I, I kind of tinker between the policy side uh, in Washington because I still have a lot of connections and a lot of friends who I used to work with are now in the current administration. And so um, I'm staying very close to the policy front, um, you know, things like fee increases on uh, high bail loans at the GSEs and those kinds of things. Um, but I have a, a group of clients and uh, some are mortgage bankers, um, uh, some are, you know, fintechs and other kinds of uh, support services for the business uh, and for the industry. Um, some are kind of product-based. So uh, I work a lot with all of them and they all have different needs. And some may be policy-driven and some may be thinking about, you know, working to improve how their organizations operate. So I, I actually function on both sides of the aisle with since I've experienced both on the business side and the policy front. So you were just as plugged in today as as you've ever been, right? Right in the boardroom with making all decisions and helping the decision makers guide the path forward, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it's a little different when you head the MBA. You uh, have to advocate positions of the MBA. And um, with what I do now, uh, I'm a little more freelance. I can I can look at the policies that are being worked on and uh, try to make them better, but they may not always be things that my trade association would have wanted me to do. Um, yep. Most times they are, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's still very similar and, you know, you don't lose those connections you had uh, for the whole multiple numbers of years you worked inside the beltway. Yeah. So Dave, before we jump into some of the meaty topics like FHFA fee hikes, I, I want to start with a question that I think all of us are often asked as, as housing professionals, whether you're a mortgage banker or real estate agent um, or wherever you fit in this ecosystem. How's the housing market? Housing market's on fire. I mean, um, you know, we all know where the stresses are, right? There's um, Urban Institute just put out their uh, uh, December chart book. I posted one of the slides on LinkedIn. Um, you know, we have just about the lowest supply uh, of homes for sale that we've ever seen in the history of this country, uh, at least in recorded history in this nation. And that just reflects the extraordinary demand that is really being driven primarily by millennial buyers. And uh, that is not going to abate anytime soon. So that's why when you look at whether it's MBA or Fannie or Freddie, the demand for purchase units is only gonna be higher in 2022 than it was in 2021 and higher in 2023 than 2022. So the housing market as it were, uh, is really good. It's just unfortunately for lenders in this country, not going to be enough to offset the massive uh, reduction in refinances that has already happened and uh, will continue to be this way over the foreseeable future. So, how so you're pointing at this supply and demand imbalance that we don't really see abating, we don't see an immediate solution to. So, how how should we think about as an industry how we measure that imbalance, or or thinking about do we have a housing deficit? Like, how do you measure that? How do you how do you talk about that? Well, there's you know in terms of data, the, the points that administrators, uh, policymakers inside Washington look at when they're thinking of housing policy is we're running about 2.1 
uh, month's supply of uh, resale inventory on the marketplace now, um, which is absurdly low. And uh, and we got up to about a 14-month supply of inventory during the Great Recession, and that was absurdly high. So, um, you know, somewhere in there, there's the right uh, balance. But this market is different than the Great Recession because we also have the biggest um, cohorts of the biggest generation in American history reaching their early 30s. So the demand has never been higher ever in, ever before in history. Uh, it's bigger than the baby boom generation when they were at their peak buying years. And so uh, the pressure is extraordinary. Um, we have an unusual uh, market of cash buyers, often from just investors that have been sweeping up uh, homes, cash bids, uh, sight unseen. And that only makes the stress harder for uh, real qualified uh, particularly first-time home buyers or move-up buyers um, to be able to get that home. And that's why you're seeing all these multiple offers in the marketplace. The stress is pretty unreal. And, um, you know, it, we're not feeling any relief yet. But I would say, Clayton, that we haven't seen the spring market. And uh, the one thing that's true is uh, people who own homes, just as there's, there was pent-up demand to buy homes uh, because, we were all masked up and people couldn't go out and look at homes. And um, uh, in many cases, real estate wasn't considered a necessary uh, profession. And so for states that had full lockdown, you couldn't even go show homes and that kind of thing. Um, there's just as much pent up demand from sellers. And uh, there's a whole bunch of folks who would have been thinking about moving, either millennials who had bought their first home and now have kids and they need a bigger home, folks who are ready to retire and move into a different kind of home. People are going through life changes, through different marital relationships and arrangements or what have you. And that has also been very pent up. And so I think what a lot of us are waiting to see is will resale inventory as we get into February and March, will we start seeing levels of new resale inventory hitting the market at levels higher than they were in 2021 or 2020? Um, and uh, I expect that to be the case because there's so much equity uh, sitting uh, on the balance sheets of so many Americans who own homes that the only way they can really lock that in is sell that home, take the cash and go maybe get the kind of home in the location that they really want. And so uh, we'll have to see how this year plays out. Um, but this imbalance will correct itself. Same in the new home builder market, right? We're, uh, we're seeing uh, new housing starts continue to increase. Um, and so there's an expectation from the National Association of Home Builders that we're going to see new home sales also progressively increase over the next couple of years as inventories uh, increase to market. I wanted to start out with that question of how's the housing market because I, I I I agree with you on the word it, it's hot like the market is the market's on fire it's hot but there still feels like there's so many challenges in the market and there's uh, there's clearly some winners and losers there's there's lenders who aren't going to have the refi volume next year but they have this great purchase pipeline that's building up there's homeowners that are seeing their um, home price appreciation keep hiking and they have more equity in their homes but they but then there's definitely losers in, in the equation as well. First time home buyers who are, who are stuck on the sidelines. And yeah. um, so how do you think about, are there other winners and losers we aren't, we aren't thinking about right now? And, and if you, if someone really digs into that question of like, how's the housing market, do you feel like some of these challenges are a, are a, a risk to saying the housing market is healthy or, or unhealthy? Like where do where do you kind of draw the, the, the equation between like hot and healthy? 
Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good question, Clayton. And I, I think you've nailed it, right? Um, it is hot and homes stay on the market for an instant. So uh, if you've got a listing, congratulations. You've yeah. got a guaranteed commission check in almost any market in the country. Uh, and that house is going to sell very quickly. Um, it is crowding out uh, entry-level home buyers, particularly anybody who has a story to tell. So if you're a entry-level home buyer without a down payment, you have some level of down payment assistance, and the loan, uh, the loan process is going to be a little more difficult and you're in a multiple offer situation, is the seller going to take your offer over another? Um, and that's a challenge. We have appraisal challenges, right? Uh, particularly in the most heated hyperinflated markets and will the appraisal meet the sales price? If you come in with that uh, top offer to try to beat everybody else out in a multiple offer scenario, I, I will say that the the, 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 the critical target of those uh, likely most impacted in terms of adverse outcomes to the, to the supply demand imbalance right now are likely to be African-American and Hispanic home buyers. If you want to Kind of look at cohorts or, or, or demographic segments, uh, and and there's a whole variety of reasons for that. But you know, the, put another way, the cash buyer with a 760 FICO and um, uh, or the the big down payment buyer with you know a W two and a super high credit score, clo- promising to close non contingent. I mean, those are the deals that are going to go uh, to the seller first, and that's going to be the most appealing, and that's an unfortunate outcome. That's why if you look at any of the policy coming out of the administration, whether it's FHFA, uh, whether it's the legislation uh, in the infrastructure bill, it has a variety of housing bills in there to deal with supply and lending. Whether you uh, hear about the focus on uh, fair lending for particularly non-banks, which is going to try to force non-banks to do more lending to uh, those that are usually most affected by markets like this. Um you know, all the policy is really focused on trying to make sure that these guys, these folks don't get shut out of the marketplace. Um, so, yeah, hot market. Is it a fair market? Uh, can't say that. I just think we have so much demand um, that, yes, there are going to be a lot of folks at least uh, that have been and are right now currently being left on the sidelines because their story, their package, when they go try to buy that home, just won't be as strong as the six or seven other folks who who are going to come in and make an offer at the same time. And that's a real challenge. So I like, and I think it's really good that you're pointing toward a path where there is, there is equilibrium on the, on the horizon. There is a path where supply demand imbalance can, can, uh, can abate a little bit. We don't know the, the timeline of that, but as I think about the, the drivers for, for balance, I kind of think about policy, think about commercial activities of builders and lenders. And then I also think about psychology and we have like this, this homeowner psychology of folks that are sitting on the sideline for, for one reason or another, the traditional um, trade up buyer and seller, like might not be able to afford that house of their dreams that they thought they would buy when they have their second or, or third kid or whatever stage of life they are at. What do you, which like kind of shoe do you think will drop first? Or what do you think is most important to happen in terms of psychology, kind of commercial interests of lenders and builders and policy and regulation that, that really like gets us moving in the right direction? Hmm. Well, as you know, as hopefully we all can appreciate if we depend on policy to be the leader here, um, I, I would I would say just let let's pull back on that. But you know there are some first time homebuyer bills um, that are in the infrastructure package that if this thing ever does go through, 
will certainly provide an easier pathway to be able to come buy a home. Um, uh, on the home builder front, um, you know, there's a whole lot of limitations as to why home builders may not be so eager to provide uh, entry level housing to uh, their portfolio of homes that they're building. Part of its margin, right? The margin on a uh, $750,000 home is more than it is on a $400,000 home, particularly when you think about the point of land acquisition uh, to the, the entire process to ultimately the settlement of that transaction and a new home buyer walking into that new home. That's become a lot longer in the past decade or so due to a whole lot of things related to zoning and other restrictions that just make it uh, a, a lot more challenging to make it profitable and to tell your shareholders why you're doing that entry-level housing stuff. And so we need a lot of new kind of players in the industry to come in and think about um, new ways to bring first-time homeowner, first-time housing into the market, whether it's little homes or uh, all of these sort of variety uh, equity share concepts and the, the various approaches. Oh. But there, there will be people who try to fill that void. It just won't happen uh, quick enough. And, and that's going to be uh, the real challenge. Home, potential home buyers uh, who are, we have two things going on. Sentiment for potential home buyers has slumped. Um, and many are thinking, wow, this home appreciation is out of control. I want to wait till it stops or goes the other way. And yeah, personally, I think that's kind of a, a crazy decision. If, if just because home prices went up 18% year over year from November to November previous year per core logic, um, appreciation rate is going to slow but it's still going to be an appreciating market. So even if it's 4%, you know, that half million dollar home is still going to be $20,000 higher uh, a year from now and homes are still going up. So the, the argument about waiting do doesn't always make sense either. The one thing that rising prices does, unfortunately, along with rising rates, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, it will shrink the, the prospective buyer pool um, to your point so that, even first-time home buyers, move-up buyers, those with equity in their homes that want to go buy their dream home, um, they may hold back because uh, you know now rates are higher. I can qualify for less of a mortgage, and the home I want is more expensive. So that balance will have to come into play more. But by God's, uh, I, I would just say, don't expect any big correction here. That is just not going to happen. And that's not me talking. That's literally every economist in the nation talking, uh, don't expect a correction in home prices uh, in single family detached residential real estate. That's that's likely not to happen. What we will see is potentially a, a little less of this um, seller's market uh, slightly. But you know, again, as you're seeing even in today's news by other economic research, we're still looking at 2022 as being a big seller's market, no matter how you end up slicing it. And yeah, back it, 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 the winners and losers variable affects all of those things that you're talking about. Policy can help, but it never happens quick enough. 
So does the American consumer just need to wrap their head around the fact that housing is not going to be more affordable and it might take up a larger percentage of their paycheck in future years? And it's just something that that we need to wrap our head around as a as a nation, as an economy, as as consumers and potential homeowners and, and renters where they are in their life cycle, that housing is just going to be expensive. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's it. And Clayton, you know, the one thing that, um, you know, we've talked a lot about over the years is not everyone should be a homeowner. Um, Nothing wrong with being a renter. Uh, Although, you know, when you look at wealth creation in this country and you look at uh, Department of Labor statistics, um, the average homeowner uh, in America as of last year has about $250,000 in net worth. The average renter has about twelve hundred bucks, and so um, you know there is value in being able to build long-term um, uh, wealth uh, that can be help you sustain and and provide intergenerational wealth to hand down to your children and more if you can become a homeowner. But there will be no like immediate relief with a home price correction. You know, so many people want to compare the two thousand and eight housing crisis to the uh, 2020, 21, 22, post-pandemic real estate boom. Um, we're in an extraordinary healthy economy. The reason why rates are rising is the economy is w- wickedly strong and the Fed is backing away from subsidizing the marketplace yeah. because they do not need to. Um, the supply chain shortages and everything we're feeling on the inflation side is because the economy is wicked strong and prices are up everywhere because of demand. Uh, the shortage of workers and the shifting of workforces, uh, people call it the great resignation. People aren't resigning and not working. People are resigning lower income paying jobs to higher income paying jobs. Uh, so we have a big shift going on in the marketplace. Um, and we're seeing a significant and intentional move from a lot of urban markets to more affordable markets uh, because of the, the ability to work remotely and to buy a more affordable home. So uh, Mark Zandi, the chief economist from Moody's Analytics, talks about this often in his interviews. This will right-size um, at all levels. The inflation's going to uh, uh, come back to normalized levels. Unemployment is going to uh, reach full employment, but then it's the, the demand is going to slow down for new jobs. Um, and mm-hmm. this entire food chain that affects housing will reach a better equilibrium. It's just not going to happen in early 2022, and it isn't going to be some massive correction brought on the U.S. economy because we put a whole bunch of folks in no-doc loans um, in places like Las Vegas and Florida, uh, or we did too many subprime loans, which don't exist anymore. It's an entirely different marketplace and we have huge demographics to support all of this. Uh, so this healthy economy uh, that's created the supply and demand problem and is pricing out and crowding out a lot of folks, we got to figure out how to make it easier for them to buy homes, uh, isn't going to uh, subside anytime quickly, uh, despite a lot of effort being put behind it. But it isn't going to change the fact that we are in a booming housing market and it's going to be a strong housing market for clearly all of 2022. And and, uh, and that's what people should realize. 
So what signals are we getting from the FHFA right now? So we saw conforming loan limits pop up quite a bit, close to a million dollars in a lot of the most expensive markets, coastal markets in the country. Um, this week, we saw uh, new upfront fees on high balance and second homes. So what is the FHFA trying to tell us about their focus, their prioritization, and the role that they want to play in helping people access homeownership or investment properties? Or what, what signals are we seeing? Yeah, and um, it's a great question. uh, Sandra talks about it on her, uh, or the FHFA talks about it on their announcement on their own website, Mm -hmm. so you can look there. Uh, Sandra Thompson will be testifying for her hearing next week, uh, her confirmation hearing. If she gets asked a question, there's another person going through confirmation that might be a little more popular than her, uh, but she will get a chance to talk about it there as well. But here's what is happening right now. the the real challenge for the GSEs is to focus on their mission, focus on first time home buyers, uh, and really try to find new ways to uh, find new paths for minorities to gain access to homes through a GSE product. Roughly two thirds of all purchases for African Americans and Hispanics still goes through a Ginnie Mae program, and the GSEs have continue to struggle with how to get there. And it's, in my view, it's pretty simple. It's a combination of loan level price adjusters combined with mortgage insurance. Uh, This pairing was put in place under Ed DeMarco when he was the FHFA director. We never had LLPAs prior to that. Uh, And it's made it, it's just priced out a lot of uh, first time home buyers that make an FHA loan uh, more expensive. But the moves they made this past week uh, to raise, um, Price adjusters on high bow uh, and on second homes was intentional to say that's really not mission of the GSEs and private capital can support those markets really well. And and as a result, well, there are rules that set what the FHA has to do with loan limits that are pretty restrictive. And Sandra can't just say, I don't want to raise loan limits this year. They've gotten too high. They have to follow a formula. Um, there are other ways to make sure that the GSEs aren't crowding out private capital where private capital really can play a great role in the, in the, in the jumbo market in particular, uh, as well as the second home market. But uh, I will uh, just say, look for other moves from FHFA in the coming period that you will see, probably price related, I would expect, that will might might head in a slightly different direction as you think about the cost charge to uh, first-time home buyers and entry-level home buyers in the conforming, the traditional conforming space of the GSEs. Uh, and I think you'll see that focus begin to show itself as we move forward. So you're pointing at the the actions will be more price focused than like product structure focused. So we don't we're not anticipating uh, more emphasis on a on a longer amortization schedule or um, a, a lower down payment program. This is going to be more pricing focused. Is kind of where you see the direction headed. Yeah, and keep in mind uh, that's that's uh, statute right. So the um, the QM rule. Um, the legislation that was passed in Dodd Frank, not even it wasn't even rule based. Uh-huh. Uh, the legislation eliminated the ability for anyone to do extended term loans in the marketplace, uh, interest only loans, certain arm programs, and um, and so the GSEs were not exempt to the QM rule. Only the Ginnie Mae programs w- were, and so no, I don't believe there will be any 
product differentiation in the form of extended term loans. But I do think there are ways that the GSEs can think about making the pricing more affordable. I don't want to get too technical here, Clayton, but when Ed DeMarco instituted the LLPA grid, which all of you in the loan business know what that means, uh, he did so and, and stated that the reason why is that he said mortgage insurance companies basically are not trusted counterparties. Because remember, the MI takes first loss down to somewhere around a 60 LTV, depends on the exact loan and LTV to begin with. But they take they take all first loss down to around 60 LTV. There's no reason why you have to ch- charge an LLPA if, if, the, if the MI is solid. Um, but since Ed put the LLPAs in place, We've we've established a P Myers rule, which was established in the Mel Watt regime. I think might have been the end of Ed's term, um, but I think it was Mel's term. Uh, that it requires bigger capital for the mortgage insurance companies and makes them more trusted counterparties uh, in terms of how they will behave in the next downturn and make sure they'll be more solid. Mm-hmm. So you don't need a separate set of pricing structures to sort of double price the loan because the MI is not necessarily as strong as you want them to be. So. I expect there'll be a much closer look at the LLPAs in, again, the traditional conforming loan limit areas, not in the high balance areas where they're kind of moving in the other direction, more because of mission of the GSEs. So uh, I think you'll see this all play out as the year goes forward. Hi, I'm Tom Hutchins, Executive Vice President of Angel Oak Mortgage Solutions. We'll be bringing you news and updates every other week so you can stay updated on what's going on in non-QM. The NBA recently released their projections for 2022, and they're forecasting a huge purchase market, with purchase volume rising 9% to a record $1.75 trillion. However, refis will drop an astounding 62%. For those who have relied on refis in the past year, you will need to shift and find ways to offer more purchase products. Non-QM can help. I can't say it enough. If you aren't looking into how to utilize non-QM, you're doing yourself a disfavor. The first step is to find an experienced non-QM lender to work with that can educate you on the programs and help you find these types of borrowers. We'll get into details of the programs in the coming weeks, but for today, that's your non-QM minute. Let's jump over to to one of the issues that's been front and center in a few headlines in the last few months. And and you you breached the topic early in our conversation about the the purchase volume not necessarily being enough or strong enough to to make up for lost refi volume in, in 2022. That dynamic seems to be playing through in some lenders' staffing levels. It seems like that's something we have predicted and did anticipate throughout this, this full bull run and refi for the last two years. But now we're starting to, to see some of those jobs be shed. How are you hearing mortgage lenders talk about and think about their staffing levels. Are they are there certain roles, um, certain functions that are kind of m- more at risk or that just kind of have to be shed to maintain profitability and margin as we shift out of this refi cycle? And are we shifting out of a refi cycle? <laughs> uh, yes, we're shifting out of a refi cycle. <laughs> What's it, MBA? Pratt and Tony's saying 62% drop right now, I think is the projection for refi in 2022. Yeah, you, you can go... The Urban Institute, uh, if, if you go to urban.org, I think it is, but look at the Urban Institute's website. They have a chart book. Uh, look at their December chart book. You can get the forecast from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and MBA, not just for next year, but this year, past years. Um, and while they differ, 
differ in the absolute number of volume they forecast, they're all showing huge, steep reductions. And you know it, right? And that's already started. That happened in Q3. It happened yeah. in Q4. So we're not like, it doesn't just start now. It's I, I'm seeing branch teams right now producing like a loan a day. And it's 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 ugly. Um, yeah. This is here to stay. Um, and did lenders predict this? I don't think they did. Um, you know, I, I've been talking about it. I think I wrote about it in Housing Wire a couple of times. I've been talking about this for uh, the past two years. Um, the party is... Uh, brought on to us by uh, Powell and the Federal Reserve that created the short uh, to keep the economy strong during the pandemic that drove rates into the twos is over. Uh, tapering is here. Um, even as we're talking today, we're seeing what's happening in the rates market. It's just continuing upward. We don't need to get to four even. We just have to be in the mid threes. And uh, you're solidly out of, of refi world for far too many coupons in the marketplace. So um, what makes this contraction harder, and I hate to tell this to everybody, is we're coming off of a much larger peak, right? In 2018, we were starting to feel real pressure, real pain as rates were rising in 2018. People probably don't even remember this uh, because then rates started dropping in 2019. Then we had the pandemic, went into uh, the Fed QE, and it, it, it just get, got us back into this massive boom market for 2020 and 2021. But 2018, we're, we were really beginning to feel it. And um, the problem was we were coming off of about a $1.8 trillion marketplace the year before. Well, 2020 was a $3 trillion market. So was, uh, 2021 was about a $3 trillion market. The drop, the collapse is going to be far more profound uh, to our industry and even great purchase shops. Uh, I work with companies... Um, some of whom are like 65, 35, uh, purchased to refi, that still means that that 35%, it's going to be hugely painful. And even if a company had a good purchase refi mix, that doesn't mean all LOs were good purchase loan officers. Every, every lender in America has a lot of LOs that lived on refis the last couple of years, actually walked away from relationships that they uh, didn't maintain because there was just so much business to be had because uh, it was so flush. And now it's almost like starting over. The great contraction uh, that we're going to see here, we haven't even begun to felt, uh, feel. Um, yes, there's some job contraction going on. A couple thousand jobs was reported by Wells Fargo Securities Analysts uh, in a newsletter they put out this week. That's, that's just nothing. Um, we're going to see mergers and acquisitions and significant contractions. Now, don't freak out. Uh, in many ways, that's a good thing. We talk about right sizing in our business, and you know, clearly, a boom market is a lot less painful than having to right size. I get that. Nobody wants to right size, and I'd love it to have you. Uh, everybody would like to hear some Pollyannish view about. Don't worry, the Fed's going to jump back in because we're going to be back in recession, and which is really what lenders want, right? They want another great big recession so the Fed drops in and we can refi everybody again. That's just not going to happen. Economy's on fire. Fed's backing away. Uh, even the liberal Fed governors are backing away from a hawkish standpoint. Rates are going to continue going up, not rap dramatically. We're still going to maybe be at four uh, by the end of the year, but four kills your refi business other than cash outs. Uh, one institution in their daily newsletter this week said that we're running already 60% cash out refi to 40% rate term. Uh, it's the end of that market and the whole 
denominator of the refi market has shrunk. And so realtors are going to have good years because we're going to be doing more purchases this year than last year and more purchases this year than the last any year in the last decade. So realtors are going to do more business. Home builders are going to be doing more business. Um, uh, folk, people who are solely purchase focused. So the, the lender shops that work inside home builders that don't do refis, they're going to feel a lot less pain because they didn't get the joy of 20 and 21 in terms of all that refi activity. But it's going to be painful. And what comes with this pain, this washing out period, if you haven't been through one, begins with margin compression. You're already having it and you're facing it now, but we haven't gotten through it yet. The margin compression is going to hit us first, meaning you're going to be making less margin on every loan you do. Some originators uh, are going to originate literally at a loss yeah. just to maintain the relevance. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on everybody else. So let's dig in a little deeper. There. We, know, we know that margin compression is already like the, the wheels are in motion. The, the second that refi volume started to slow down in, in mid 2021, like we, we were on the path toward uh, margin compression. So if you're on the board of an IMB right now, or you're the CEO of an IMB, public or private, what, what are the actions that are being taken today to prepare for the purchase market of 22, 23, 24 without this refi business that's been just pumping cash to the bottom line for the last 18 months. You know, it's, it's funny because um, for my clients that I consult for, uh, I, I, I've been warning of this for a while and, and all of them got so big over the past couple of years, yeah. bigger beyond their wildest dreams. In some cases in America, uh, this market made billionaires out of some non-bank CEOs who started their companies basically as almost mortgage companies or small independents and grew just wildly beyond what they ever would have expected. Um, they have the ability to withstand some of this downturn. Now, some that went public uh, or have private investors are gonna be under different pressures because Wall Street investors and shareholders have no idea in reality about the true cyclicality of the mortgage business, you don't think so? Like the the I mean the pressure the pressure on the public IMBs is like in the public markets has been notable. They're not trading at a, at, at attractive multiples. No, and you see their CEOs still coming back. You know, and we're going to be the biggest, and don't worry, we're going to dominate. We're going to make acquisitions. We're going to cut costs. I don't want to name names. I'm not picking on anybody here. It's just sort of across the board of, of multiple earnings. And it's exactly what you or I would do, right? You've got to, uh, your institution is strong. Yeah. Uh, you've got to main, you want to maintain the support base of your investors. That's critical to your company. And you want to tell uh, as positive a story as possible without violating any legal restrictions, right? So that's a reality, but it's a lot easier if you're the sole proprietor of an IMB that doesn't have those pressures, or you've got one single parent who's ridden through these kinds of cycles with you before and understands it. But um, literally, I think that's going to play out differently with different companies across the country. Um, I think a lot of folks are going to decide this is it. Uh, I'm done. I kind of want to you know, cash out of this thing. I've had a good ride. Um, I'll take the offer that comes my way. Uh, it won't be the offer they want or would have expected a year ago or two years ago, but that will happen. Um, a lot of loan officer teams are going to switch firms, and it's not because or any fault of uh, the companies they work for. The companies they work for are doing everything possible to remain competitive, to provide the best marketing and uh, support that they can provide to their sales teams, 
to keep looking at any technology offering that they that might help improve uh, their spin, their sales ability, uh, to try to keep training their folks to sell cash out refis and rental loans and that kind of thing. All of that's going to go on. But when a loan officer begins to fail because the market took away their business, the first place they blame and many times is not themselves. They look at their company, their boss, uh, the place they work. And um, all of this cultural impact is going to begin to show itself as, as this market gets tougher. And so embracing your sales force, particularly your purchase loan officers, uh, and, and clearly making them understand what this change is going to be like and what to expect, uh, because the recruiting letters are coming and every yellow who listens to this knows exactly what I'm saying, because you're being recruited like crazy every day by every company with hiring bonuses and things of that sort. And it's enticing, particularly if you're having a bad month. Um, lenders, CEOs, what they're telling their boards, they've got to be talking about consolidating branches, uh, reducing ops support, where they would have excessively invested in ops support for these high-producing branches um, uh, because it was a massive refi wave and margins were so off the wall, it didn't really matter. Uh, they won't be able to make, they don't have the luxury of making those decisions going forward. Lease renewals, uh, do you even do that? I mean, all of that cost consolidation, but I think it starts with fixed expense uh, areas, and that comes in support staff and office expense. Um, the next area of focus has to be in the key teams uh, for the branch originators, which can include junior LOs, whatever else you call them, um, that work in, in on the sales teams. Uh, and then you have to start uh, differentiating your sales teams themselves based on purchase LOs versus refi LOs and what the production trends are going with the ones that aren't able uh, to keep up with this change in market and spend your time focusing on making sure that those that are your future uh, and the future of your companies are where you invest your time and resources. But this is all good. This is all happened right now. It's January. January is ugly. Um, yeah. uh, I, I assume everybody's having a fairly ugly January, except when Barry puts a rate, uh, a warning to lock out and everybody gets a few more apps in that they might otherwise not have gotten. Even those are waning because they've already locked everybody they can. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be in a period where um, people are going to realize by February, you know, if they haven't realized already, CEOs, that we got to start moving quickly. The difference, Clayton, is I think there's a little more time for sole proprietorship CEOs to not be so harsh. Uh, but I think those that have quarterly earnings, uh, have investor calls coming up that have anxious Wall Street investors, either private uh, equity firms or hedge funds uh, that are really the backbone of their firms. I guarantee that the CEOs of the mortgage companies are having pretty serious conversations with those Wall Street firms who are actually the real owners. Yep. And uh, there are decisions being worked through right now that most people are not uh, privy to but it'll become clear as time goes on. It's it's the only option, right? I, I love that Barry's rate lock alerts are uh, are, are widely utilized enough <laughs> to actually move application volume. <laughs> but I used to love it as a loan rep, you know, when rates uh, went up and I could, you know, offer a last day lock. I used to sweep in all my loans. So it was a great thing. Yeah. So so on the topic of consolidation, who are the 
who are the bankers that are going to be most relevant in uh, in some of these matchmaking conversations on kind of the, the buy side or the sell side for these uh, IMBs that, that choose to go down the path of being the consolidated or the consolidator? Well, there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, if, if you're one of these uh, big IMBs that went public in the last couple of years, you want mm-hmm. to acquire. Um, you know, you, you need to try to grow out of the problem, right? And so if you can acquire sales teams, especially if, if there's an opportunity, if it's complementary and allows you to maybe reduce ops expenses by combining teams, it's difficult culturally. But if you can get there uh, or it's new markets that you're not currently in, um, you'll see that happen. I, I'm not going to name company names. But there's an opportunity there. Um, uh, and so I think you'll, that activity is happening now. And um, I can promise you in my conversations with CEOs, everybody's buying. Um, of the vast majority are buying. Uh, yeah, I think it's um, I think it was Orlando Bravo from Toma Bravo who who has a quote in the software space about right. like not minding when markets that you invest in go south as long as you are strong enough to be the person that buys at lower multiples than you would have been able to yesterday. Yeah. And I, I think that might be something that plays here. Yeah, what's going to happen here over time is. I mean, I called a few IMBs over the last year just saying, hey, if you ever want to sell, let me know. I'm not in the middle of these transactions, but I know people who want to buy and I just make the introduction and get out of the way. And everyone's like, no, it's too good a year. I can't walk away. Well, what where you would have might maybe been able to sell for some sort of even small multiple, let alone the cash and all that kind of stuff, maybe without the earnout requirement, you know, deals over the next few years are going to be, we'll buy your cash and you can do an earnout, and that'll be your walk away package. Yeah, because uh, there won't be multiples going for these companies, but you know the acquirers are going to need to make purchases to be able to maintain, and so there'll be sellers and there'll be buyers. Who are the sellers? Um, without getting too specific, I think there are a lot of proprietary IMBs who their CEOs are have aged. Um, they're not aged, ready to retire necessarily, but they've certainly been monetized to a point where they don't need to work anymore. Uh, they know what we're headed into. Maybe it's time to look at the offers that are out there. Those deals are going to be happening. Um, and so the smaller ones will get will get merged into the bigger ones through acquisition. We already saw some of this in 2021. I think we'll see a lot more of it going forward. Um, you know, as we head into late 2021 and 22, some companies are just going to flat out close their doors. Um, uh, but the market will right size. I mean, one thing about the mortgage industry, I've been doing this for 40 years almost. And I started as an originator, which I think, you know, Clayton and, and most people know running branches and regions and, and, and loan operations before all this stuff in Washington. Um, I've been through these cycles and our industry is really good at right size, but the pain of getting there, uh, is difficult and there's no bailout pill. There's no magic, uh, fed bailout coming in the door, unless there's some global catastrophe or a geopolitical event or some massive environmental event and, and the Fed has to step in again, yep. there's nothing that's going to change this outcome. We're in a hugely strong economy. Uh, it's it's literally on fire. We got the biggest generation in history coming to buy homes in their in their early 30s. The biggest waves, the biggest cohorts of the millennial generation are here and ready to buy. And it's going to be that way for about eight or nine years uh, from now. And rates are not going to rise enough to stop this. Uh, and so 
um, you know, this is the game. This is the new game we're headed into, and it's going to be tough. Um, and I, I don't want to talk about business lines or business models, but we all know where margins are. And uh, if you assume that retail usually makes the widest margin in in the versus correspondent or wholesaleness, per, perhaps, uh, depending on what business line you're in, uh, retail margins are going to compress, uh, correspondence is going to compress, wholesale is going to compress. And, um, you know, how those institutions, who survives those, uh, this process, they're the ones who will make it over the long run. And we have survivors from decades ago um, that have made it through multiple corrections. And, you know, a whole ton of folks in the in the marketplace right now will, but it's going to be, you know, real discipline that gets us through this this period here. So, Dave, this is my my first episode back on housing news in a while. I've been off the microphone for a bit. So thanks for letting me uh, warm back up with you. Couldn't think of a, a better guest to, to get back on the air with. I, I have one question that I'm kind of playing with. That I think I want to ask at the end of every interview. But I'm going to try it out here and, and, and hopefully it's, it's a good answer. So, Dave, you, you just mentioned you've been in this industry for 40 years. So if you did not dedicate your career to housing, what professional path would you have taken? What, what does an alternate universe look like for you? Uh, honestly, I probably would have tried to be a ski instructor. <laughs> or um, I, went to, I went to college for one semester, dropped out, moved to Aspen and lived there for a couple of years. And I, uh, I, I may have made the mistake and went back to college. It's been a great career, but, um, you know, this business is very cyclical and uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's one you got to have a stomach for. But, you know, really, in all honesty, I, I look back and I say being a loan officer was probably my favorite job I ever did. And uh, I loved it through all the cycles. Um, picking, a, deciding what I would have done differently as a career, probably yeah, something related to scheme. So the so the episode will be called mortgages or moguls. That's the, uh, that's the <laughs> mortgages or moguls. I like that. <laughs> All right, Dave. Thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Have a great one. All right, dude. You too. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.